Welcome back to episode number 123 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are back on part two of the Ask Me Anything session on combustible dust safety in Australia and New Zealand. And we have that with Dr. Chris Bloor, who was the guest moderator for this session, and Dr. Jim Monroe. So if you haven't listened to last week's podcast episode, it's probably better to go back and listen to that first, because that was part one of this episode. And this is based on some new focus that we have inside the Dust Safety Academy. We're really trying to take a global view of combustible dust safety. This is going to involve bringing on experts from around the world, doing sessions in other time zones, so that other folks have access to this type of material that we're creating. So this podcast episode, again, is part two of this Ask Me Anything session for New Zealand and Australia. I gave a, a pretty detailed introduction to Dr. Chris Bloor and Dr. Jim Monroe in last week's episode, so I won't go through all the details again, but suffice to say that both of them have combined, try to do the math here, but I'll say at least 80 years, if not more, involved in explosion protection and combustible dust between the two of them. They're extremely knowledgeable in this area. So last week, we covered a lot of the groundwork in terms of regulation background, um, the industries that are typically involved in combustible dust in Australia and New Zealand. We closed on some of the practical challenges. This week's episode, we're going to jump right in again on what kind of industries may be involved with combustible dust safety in Australia, and that's going to be Jim talking about that. We're going to talk about some of the large loss incidents over time and what are some of the lessons learned from these type of incidents. We're going to talk through the role of housekeeping and dust control and what challenges can arise with dust collection systems, and we'll close on on certification of equipment and technical committees and how that all wraps into this international view of combustible dust safety. So without further ado, I will pass it over to Jim and to Chris to go through this Ask Me Anything session that was from the Dust Safety Academy. I think we get plenty of incidents um, with, uh, often it's fires though, I think. So and we have a number of industries that happen. We have, of course, a lot of wheat in Australia. Uh, we have cotton. Uh, so you've got, in that case, you've got rather than dust so much, you've got the flyings of the fibres from the, the cotton. So we've we've got, of course, we've got the use of coal above ground as well. I remember I did one job one year looking at a conveyor system for coal for a, a coal um, electricity generation plant. Um, and it was interesting to see the the lack of understanding or commitment to do anything about avoiding build-up of coal dust in areas you really wouldn't want it, like over the top of motors and things like that. It was quite uh, quite worrying. So I, I suspect some of our good record in those sort of things is by by good luck and not by by good management as it happens. We also have a wood industry, so we have plenty of things coming out of that, particularly in mills. I do know some years ago I got involved in a program of looking at improving safety in the mills associated with the forest industry and uh, was uh, involved in in developing a code of practice for that industry. And I know at that time the major problem there, again, was fires. I don't recall at that time, although it's some years ago now, that there was as much an issue with explosions occurring, but fires were certainly a very real real problem that, that had to be dealt with. It's interesting, uh, we had an incident recently that's not not a normal one, but it's an, an indication of what can happen if things go wrong. We have a wood chip mill uh, at Eden in the southern part of New South Wales. And during the bushfires, the the, uh, one of the stockpiles of wood chips caught fire. 
they had immense troubles. I never actually heard the final result, but I know it was going for days and days and days, and they were struggling to find a way to put out the fire once they got into that big pile of, of wood chips. Uh, I'd just like to take us back to something I, that, that occurred to me that I didn't mention in the context of legislation. Each, again, we have each state has this legislation for sometimes they're called occupational health and safety, sometimes workplace health and safety. But although those that legislation, to the best of my knowledge, certainly that was an area I was involved with in New South Wales, but I think it's the same in other states, doesn't directly reference uh, explosive atmospheres or hazardous areas. If you have an accident of some description, an incident or an accident, particularly if people are inju uh, injured, then those acts and associated regulations come into play in relation to investigations and prosecutions that will come out of it. So there's some very hefty uh, penalties that, in, that are involved, and these can be applied right up to directors of the company tended to sort of focus people's minds a bit more in recent years. Excellent. Yeah, the uh, the, the liability issue is something that's um, that tends to become very uh, very much front of mind when you have an incident. So um, I thought we'd, we'd have a quick, uh, some of the more practical side of things is, suppose you've got some premises, you're about to make a product, it may be a a run-of-the-mill product or it may be something a bit new. I'm thinking here of some of the newer agricultural powders that are being produced for the uh, sort of health food market. Where, where do you go to get some of these products tested? Now, back in the day, you had a choice in Australia of Simtars in Queensland or Test Safe Australia in New South Wales. Um, both those facilities have stopped testing to the best of my knowledge. So um, I've a number of times had the question, well, where do I send samples? And I've directed people towards the DECRA facility near Shanghai, uh, but there may be other plants, uh, other labs that um, you, you've come across where people can send samples to, to get tested. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm aware of a facility in Guangzhou in China that does this sort of testing. It's a little while since I've visited them and I don't recall whether they were accepting external samples, in particular samples from outside China as part of their, their testing exercise. Well, the DECRA, the, plant, the DECRA lab in Shanghai certainly is still, uh, yeah. and there are also labs in the States, um, either through DECRA or, and in Germany, of course, where DECRA's um, parent company is. But it is comparatively expensive. You're looking at several thousand dollars for a suite of tests. Uh, but if you're doing design work, you need to know a few things like uh, Pmax and KST for the uh, maximum pressure and the rate of pressure rise of a dust explosion. And you probably want to know the minimum ignition energy to get some idea of whether or not you need static precaution. And there may be um, minimum ignition temperature may be required as well. I personally do quite a bit of design in terms of venting systems and they're the key parameters you need. So um, the next question was, have there been any notable large loss incidents involving combustible dust in New Zealand and Australia? I'm not aware of any big ones in Australia. I know of quite a few small explosions and fires in Australia that have cost you know, a few thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, but not millions. And I've helped investigate a few of them. 
However, in New Zealand, we've had some big ones. Um, 89, the tall form spray dryer plant was completely ripped apart. The barrel of the chamber was ripped out of the building and jumped about 200 millimetres in the air and dropped back crooked and it did a lot of damage to the building. Uh, needed The whole thing needed replacement. In uh, April 93, we had a 20 million New Zealand dollar fire following an explosion in a plant in New Zealand. The explosion did very little damage. The flexible connectors on the plant were made of Kevlar and a little bit of the stitching around the flexible connectors broke and the tiny trace of soot was found on the outside of the connector, but otherwise it held together. Unfortunately, it blew out some inflatable rubber cuffs around a butterfly valve, set fire to the ceiling of the building, which then set fire to the roof, burnt its way across the, the, the building in about 25 minutes and destroyed two spray dryer tops uh, in an adjacent building. Uh, it was about a $20 million rebuild in uh, 93. Uh, so although the explosion did relatively little damage, probably, uh, to be honest, if there had been no fire, probably two $300,000 tops. But the fire did, did a lot of damage. Again, nobody hurt. Uh, April 2005, we got a, a small fire which set off a dust explosion and a very big spray dryer, brand new one. And they spent $10 million reskinning it to basically zero life the, the stainless steel in, uh, of the chamber. Um, again, nobody hurt, but Definitely some people emotionally disturbed, I can tell you. In June 2005, there was a hot work incident at a dairy factory that set fire to expanded polystyrene panel, which is evil stuff, and that burnt down half the factory, and they it downsized it, converted it from a casein caseinate plant to a milk powder plant, and let half the staff go. And then, of course, we had the uh, Pike River um, coal mine disaster. So they're, they're some of the incidents. Now, one of the interesting things with that I've observed with insurance is that the major cost of, um, of an incident is likely to be the loss of production from the factory while it's out of action. And people will insure against that, but typical excess or deductible on the insurance policies in New Zealand are between five and $10 million. In other words, the owner of the equipment pays the first five uh, to $10 million of each claim, and they're insured for losses above that. That's to keep the insurance premiums manageable, but it gives you an idea of the sort of money that this can cost um, and there's every chance that if your plant is protected by uh, venting and or suppression, that the cost of the repair will be uh, below 10 million and you just suck it up. So it's, uh, you know, we're talking quite big sums of money here. One of the um, questions relates to, to housekeeping. I was first introduced to housekeeping in the um, 1974, when I um, did some work in Middlesbrough in the UK in a steel mill, and they paid somebody to brush the iron ore dust off the elevated walkways in the factory. And I said, well, it's, it's nice to see the housekeeping is being done, but, you know, why do you bother? And they said, do you know what the density of ground up 
iron ore is and how many tons you can accumulate per meter of walkway. And have you noticed how skinny the steelwork supporting the walkways is? And I did some back of the envelope calculations and I said, yep, if you've got more than about half an inch or 12 mil of, uh, of dust on your walkways, you're starting to uh, get into the danger zone. In the case of food industries, um, we've got hygiene requirements that basically trump any, any other combustible dust hazard uh, requirements in terms of the stringency because we don't, obviously don't want to contaminate our uh, powders uh, either with foreign material or with microbiological hazards. Um, hurting your customers is, is generally a pretty bad thing in any business um, and it can destroy your reputation and your brand values very, very quickly. So um, we, we, when it comes to housekeeping, generally the food industries tend to be very good. The feed industries, not so much. It's apparently unknown for livestock to get food poisoning. This was news to me because I thought they got sick just like people. But the feed industry's hygiene um, standards generally seem to be quite poor in my experience. And uh, therefore, there's a hazard uh, for dust explosions. And the biggest hazard of all, of course, is using blowdown guns, using compressed air to dispose of uh, powder. It, it, quote, cleans, but of course, it doesn't really, it simply relocates the, the product and disperses it. So you've got yourself a problem. Um, so the other issue I've come across is housekeeping systems where you've got a dust collector for fugitive dust. Uh, so you might have a bag filling or a bag dumping operation and you'll have a uh, dust extraction system going to a uh, bag house, a small uh, dust collector. And these are quite often put into warehouses, often with no signage or warning that it's got a problem. They usually come with an explosion panel um, and are sometimes put up, you know, a, a, a only a short distance away from a concrete wall or a metal uh, skinned wall. Um, and there's no thought given to the, uh, the hazard if it was to go bang. Um, it's often not easy to put them outdoors because of the possibility of condensation in low temperatures and the uh, resulting hygiene problems. So that'd be my two, my two pet bugbears would be compressed air blowdown guns and um, carelessly sighted and inadequately protected uh, dust collectors. I don't know what you've seen, Jim, in terms of your time in, in uh, visiting factories and things. Um, you've probably seen a few things that worry you on the more on the electrical side. Yeah, no, most of my work tends to be looking at the uh, equipment that's used in the areas and the rather poor uh, status here. I've been, I've been doing some research in Google just to find out, and I haven't found out. When I looked for dust explosions in Australia, I didn't find much. There was one... One link that then tried to put a virus in my computer, so I got out of that one. And the only one I've really been able to come up with is a potential flour mill dust explosions injured one in Manildra, Australia, which is May 19th, 2018. So it was flour, flour milling, 
Manilda is a group that particularly does uh, ethanol for use in cars and fuel. I think it does virtually all of the ethanol that's used in Australia, but it seems to have been flour dust. So I think that maybe that's another arm of the factory. But so he injured a person, blows the farm around in New South Wales. One employee suffered minor injuries when they were struck by debris, and 40 people on site were evacuated. Explosion happened in a storage facility in the orders workers started returning. Explosion blew the top off the out of the building and the sides. No, not very much information. <laughs> so yeah, maybe we are, maybe we are still being lucky. Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, luck is not a a valid uh, point a on your safety plan. Um, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't work. I have to keep reminding people that well, we haven't had any accidents. It's, uh, often yeah. it's in not just in relation to to uh, work sites and things. It's also in relation to our standards for protection of equipment. If people say, "Well, you know, you want to improve something," I said, well, "We haven't had any accident." I said, "No, well, if we had an accident, it's too late." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're very much about using a crystal ball in our industry. Well, I, um, I have a habit of telling people in my training classes, uh, there's two kinds of spray dryer in the dairy industry, the kinds that have had an explosion and the ones that are going to have an explosion. Um, they're, they're your two options. So you can do your best to prevent them, but if it, the worst comes to worst, you've got to be able to explode safely. And we've got a, a, pr a pretty good track record of having relatively minor damage from uh, even some of the quite large explosions. Um, yeah. And uh, we have not, knock on wood, um, uh, killed anybody or even badly hurt anybody in the Australian New Zealand dairy industries. But that has been um, contributed to by a good deal of good luck. And also the fact that our plants are almost unstaffed. You know, the two or three people uh, working shifts right that are actually yeah. operating almost all the machinery. And, no, I uh, don't know anything about our dairy industry in Australia, so I don't know whether we have similar sort of facilities to yourselves, but I suspect we do. I've been I think, in there's, a, I think there's a very large facility down in Tasmania. This is sort of is in the news where it was bought out by the Chinese yep. not long ago, and presumably the, the, the object of the exercise is to uh, export milk powder back to China because there's no uh, the, the China the people generally I think just lost confidence in the local milk powder after the more than one incident of contamination. Yep, that that seems to be the uh, the situation. And I've worked yeah, I think in it, every single spray yeah. drying plant in yeah. um, New South Wales, Tasmania, um, and Victoria in South Australia uh, over the years. So I know them pretty well, so and they have had know, the odd incident. Know. Um, you know, know about them, and I much more. It's not better than me. You know about them, and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, we, we've um, we've got a few more questions here. Um, can can equipment more. that's certified using NZ or, or Australian standards be sold and used elsewhere in the world? For example, in Europe or North America. I think you you made some uh, comment about that. The answers are very different. I think I'm seeing where that question was, but not put you read it out slightly different to what I saw. Anyway, it doesn't matter, I can't see the question. But basically, uh, all major countries in the world now 
are involved in the IECX scheme. And the basis for the IECX scheme for the testing of equipment is that a condition of entering the scheme is that you will commit to accepting test reports to the standards from other countries or other bodies in the scheme that have done it. And you'll also commit to accepting the assessments that have been done from manufacturers. Uh, the first one works reasonably well. There have been some hiccups with the second exercise of the manufacturers where some things are different. Uh, what happens is that in a few countries of the world, the ICX certificates that have been issued can be used direct to market. And it just happens that Australia and New Zealand are two of those countries. There are a few others, but not many. Singapore is another one. Um, there are some countries under circumstances where they might be used, for example, in Malaysia. But the majority of countries still have their own certification schemes. But in a lot of it, a lot of countries, for example, in Brazil, essentially it is just a, uh, a rubber stamping of the IEC certificate. Uh, and even in Europe, where they have ATEX, it is now common practice for anybody over there that issues a, uh, a certificate for ATEX uh, that they also issue a certificate for ICX. And the report, uh, the XTR, can be, can be, will be part of that. And the assessment, which in ICX is called a QAR, quality assessment report, and in ATEX is called a QAN, a quality sort of notification, they would essentially be, end up being dual purpose and could be used. So uh, very, very easy for equipment to get used in both countries. The big exception is the USA. The USA still mostly operates on a different form of system uh, to what IEC uses and different sets of standards which may or may not have a bit in common with IEC. Uh, so if we're talking particularly dust now, uh, they tend to have equipment in the US which is called explosion protected. Uh, often that will be used for dust as well as for, uh, for areas where there are explosion hazards, but the requirements it would be, there would be some reasonable similarities, but in principle, uh, and also in the US, there is provision to be able to use the IEC, what's called the zone system. They use division normally, but it's not very widely used. So basically getting an IEC certificate from anybody in the world will effectively get you into most other countries, but maybe with a bit of tweaking at the, at the acceptance end with the big exception of being the US. Yep. Even even Canada has moved to the IC approach, even though they have a lot of other commonalities with, with the US. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so for that. I guess that's the short answer to that one. The long answer would take a few hours. <laughs> well, both of us have worked, um, you know, internationally, and I must say it's jumping around between metric and, and US units and um, with different certifications. And then even within Germany, you've got the VDI and the EN, which are often, but not always the same or similar. And you've got the earlier adoption of the risk-based approach by the Europeans and the slower adoption by the US. And um, it, it's been something of a movable feast. So uh, trying to, to keep up with it all has been, been tricky. The, uh, well, I think we've done pretty well with acceptance of the standards. Uh, as you're aware, I was chairman of ICTC31 committee for 
15 years. I started in about 1987 or 88. And at that time, IEC standards were not really adopted by many countries at all. They were used as a basis. But even at that time in Europe, they were pushing ahead very hard in Centelec to develop their own standards because they needed them for the ATEX system. Uh, but over that, in that time I was chairman, we really turned that around. And the, with the exception of, oh, even the US adopts IEC standards, but in the zone approach. Now, majority of the countries in the world, even if they have some slight tweaking on the certificates, are basically using identical standards. And they're the standards that come out of IEC, the, the TC31 committee. And we have and mostly uh, with no changes. So they are the same. So in ATIX, you get a, they end up with a bit of an annex that has to address what they call the essential health and safety requirements, but technically the standards are the same. Um, occasionally in Australia, we've taken issues with some things in standards, but again, not not very often. So we have a, a pretty good uh, basis for in in the, in the world for commonality in standards, not only just for the equipment, but also for things like the, the classification of areas, installation and maintenance. No, it's good because I, I've been briefly exposed to a tiny part of the technical committee system and uh, the amount of work that, and, and it's usually pro bono work by um, a relatively small number of engineers and, and scientists that put a huge amount of effort into this and uh, it really does do the whole world a favour when it comes to uh, making everybody safer. Well actually um, towards the end of my time uh, with TC31 Chair I wrote a paper where I I examined the work of what we were doing, not just in the actual international committees, but all the mirror committees throughout the world. And I worked out we were effectively running a multi-million dollar exercise, all pro bono. <laughs> yeah. it's, um, it's huge. And for younger people coming into the um, situation and finding it in, in relatively good order, going back 30, 40, 50 years, and, uh, not so much. <laughs> no. So look, that's well, we, brilliant. We, we took a decision back in the early '80s when I was chair of the local committee of standards that it didn't make any sense to keep developing Australian standards. It made more sense to get involved. This is 80, 81, actually. I went to an IEC committee and I realised that if if you submit a comment and you were prepared to put someone into the committees to follow up on that comment, you had a chance to really influence the standards. So we decided we would. We would do that, and we've been highly successful in standards the way we want them, and have people in influential positions. Uh, even though my term as chair of the main committee is finished, we have a, a chair of one of the subcommittees, which deals with has classification and installation. That's Neil Dennis. We also have someone who's now a, a deputy chair of the main committee. Uh, so uh, we, we we punch well above our weight considering our size. I, I would say we're in the top four countries in the world in terms of influence on those standards. Well, Neil Dennis, of course, I work with him, amongst others, on that um, MS11 committee for the ASNZS 4745. So, um, right. And there's a small number of people have really put a huge amount of effort in. Well, uh, it's, it's been a, a most interesting uh, opportunity for the two of us to have a bit of a chat about some of the issues relating to combustible dust from our different viewpoints. I'm hoping that this will finally make it to air and people will eventually get to watch it. If you're watching it after the event, which all of you will, 
I hope it's been of some uh, value to you. And um, it's a bit of a novelty having the webinar uh, in a time zone a bit different from uh, the North American uh, East Coast zone. So um, thank you for, for all of you who are uh, going to watch this in due course. Thank you very much to Jim for um, being able to uh, join in on this. And a big thanks to Dr. Chris Cloney, who set up the Dust Safety Academy and who's really picked up the challenge of uh, promulgating uh, knowledge and expertise and wisdom and hard-earned experience about combustible dust to a worldwide audience that was in great need of it. So uh, goodbye from me and goodbye from Jim. Thank you. So that's it for this week's episode of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Again, I want to thank Dr. Chris Bloor and Dr. Jim Monroe for coming on Inside the Dust Safety Academy to do this new and interesting Ask Me Anything session. Again, this is part of a larger program that we're trying to do to get more involvement with other parts of the world with the work that we're doing at the Dust Safety Academy. So you can get access to all the recordings and replays of these type of Ask Me Anything sessions or training sessions that we do in the Dust Safety Academy at dustsafetyacademy.com, or you can go to the show notes to this podcast episode to find the links for that, which is at dustsafetyscience.com slash one, two, three. In this week's episode, we had Dr. Bloor and Dr. Monroe talk through the Ask Me Anything session questions that came in from the community. In this part two, they talked through example industries in Australia and New Zealand that have combustible dust challenges. They talked through some large loss incidents, the role of housekeeping, dust collection, uh, equipment certification, and how technical committees function to create and understand the different approaches for combustible dust safety and control measures that need to be put in place. So I want to say a last thank you to Chris and to Jim for coming on inside the Dust Safety Academy to put on this session. And I want to say one last thank you to you for tuning into the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Have a great and productive week ahead. Hope you stay safe out there. And I look forward to continuing to bring you more information through the podcast, through the Dust Safety Academy, and through dustsafetyscience.com. Thank you.